Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. So it's someone you know well this week. We live not very far from each other. and uh, On Stella oh, Street. On Stella Street. And in the old days, of course, we'd be seeing each other at coffee houses and stuff. Now we just sort of wave from the other side of the street. When you said the old days, we see each other at coffee houses. What do you mean, the 18th century? Yes, with Oswald <laughs> and John. Yes. <laughs> Byron. <laughs> well, actually, we do go back because Johnny, who's a very close band member and, and co-writer to most of her hits, or Texas's hits, we go back all the way to about 1982. Uh, as I'm sure you'll find out if you listen. I dare say I shall. <laughs> All right, so let's get her on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good think, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Contours podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello. God, look at you lot all so professional. You get headphones, microphones. <laughs> Do you know what, Gary? Okay. I want to tell this really funny story, right? Yeah, okay. When I played Spandau the other day, I told this story after it because there was this great moment where one of my bands, Michael, who is no longer in the band, but he was um, a keyboard player and he was in Glasgow with a duffel coat on. And I said on the radio, I said, right, okay, for a certain generation that knows Spandau, early Spandau, is like, you know, because I played the early Spandau. I said, I said and they were always top dressed. They always looked really cool. They had duffel coats at one point. I said, and Michael, our keyboard player, was in Glasgow in a duffel coat, standing, waiting to go to rehearsals. And one of the band was picking them up. And somebody drove past them in a car, a couple of guys in the car and went and shouted, Oi, spanned out and threw a fish sup and it hit him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, throwing fish suppers at members of Spandau Ballet and their fans. <laughs> oh, God. No. Common practice back in those days. I didn't days. take it that way at all. Uh-huh. Got it. It's one of the greatest moments of I have never lasted. And you know, if a fish supper hits you, yeah, you know about it. That is going to hurt. <laughs> but all the bands, like, you know, my growing up with music was the music that my parents gave me, which was stuff like Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. Who else was there? My mum was very into, like, Mahalia Jackson and Ella Fitzgerald and Al Green and Marvin Gaye and everything like that. And my dad was kind of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Well, everybody's the Beatles anyway. And things like Gene Clark and Fleetwood Mac and all that sort of stuff. But my sort of thing was Spandau 
Echo and the Burning Men, Duran Duran, Blondie, the Pretenders, mm -hmm. the Clash. That That's why you play a black telly, isn't it? Or why you played a black telly? Play a black and white telly because of Joe Strummer. Yeah, I was crazy. Oh, I, you know, I thought when they they did rock the cards by the basically they were singing Charlene don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are. <laughs> Every oh. song in my life, I am sad because my my name's never been in a song ever. So I like Jolene was Charlene, and um, burn rubber on me, Charlene. <laughs> I literally changed everything. So, you know, I was that sad little, you know, I was bullied at school. I was a bit of a loner and I didn't really fit in. And, you know, you guys, musicians, I don't know how you feel about that because I always kind of think that musicians are like all the musicians I know were probably quite, we are quite geeky. We like, like our record collections, we collect stuff. You know, I've always said, I wish that someone should really do a TV show on the collections of musicians because, you know, Mick Jones has got a, a warehouse full of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that I've been there. yeah. Exactly. You Same know, here. there's like piles high of stuff, and you walk in and you're like, yeah, this is amazing. Every magazine he's ever bought. Exactly. Yeah. Piles and piles of Life magazine. I, I've never seen so many old Sony Triniton televisions in my life. I was like, <laughs> he's got this great Rasta guy who runs the whole thing for him, who is his curator, as it were. Who sort of he called it the Rock and Roll Public Library, didn't he? He did an exhibition. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I think musicians are just geeks. I wonder how much of. Uh, you know, growing up, obviously, we're really eclectic. We love this sort of music. You just went through all the bands you loved, and they were really widely eclectic pieces of music. And yeah. same for me in the 70s, you know, any, yeah. everything from soul to funk to punk to glam. But as we get older, is that obsession that we still have with all of that? It's just that just normal nostalgia. Are we slightly nostalgic about lost times when we think? Um, I don't know if we are, because there's certain bands that have really come to light that... Um, it's weird because when you're growing up, I don't know how you guys feel, but it's like you kind of think that the, the, the music that your parents listen to is just naff and you're like, whatever. I want to take a real little detour here, and I'm, I apologise for this, but only because, and this is if I've got my facts right, Shani, about your parents. If I'm correct, your dad was a merchant seaman. Yeah. And your mum was a window dresser. Yeah. Now, that is such a microcosm of post-war Britain in that those are two professions that everyone did. Merchant seaman, everyone was a merchant seaman. Tommy Steele was a merchant seaman, something you heard about all the time. And window dresser. It was as ubiquitous as like being a dentist or working in a bank or anything. And I think it's kind of what the careers officer would tell creative people to do to sort of quiet them down. I want to be an artist. No, go and be a window dresser. Yeah. And it was a job that was done by women and gay men. But those are two jobs that absolutely define Britain that are gone. The guy I read, she wasn't just a window dresser. She was a singing window dresser. Did she I? was. My mum, I mean, seriously, like my mum could have run circles around me as far as vocally. What a voice. I mean, I literally just lost my mum just before the first lockdown. And, you know, very sudden and very much. I remember like playing gigs and, and, and seeing my mum and I could literally just see how proud she was. And also whenever I would take a record home and like would, I actually, when my mum was in hospital, just before she passed away, I played her the new Texas album. And I remember her turning around to me and she went, this is a really good one. This is a really good one. And it was weird because we all know that thing, like when we play our records to the family and friends, and this, thing, when they kind of go, yeah, you're like, <laughs> oh, shit, <laughs> shit. But that thing when they go, let me hear that one again. Let me hear that again. You think, okay. But my mum had a hell of a voice. But my mum's, the whole family, my mum's whole family, that was very much part of my growing up in Glasgow was everyone had to go up and do a turn. You know, you didn't necessarily have to sing, but you had to go up and do a poem or play an instrument. My grandfather was a brilliant musician because my cousin Mark was in the band Gun. Um, he was mm -hmm. a singer in Gun. And um, we grew up and for a family to have two successful musicians. I mean, not talking about you, Gary, but do you know I mean? For, for, I fought for him not to be in the band. I fought for it. <laughs> mum insisted. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like to have two cousins that were in both in separate successful bands was like, 
it's quite a big thing, especially coming from Glasgow. And, you know, we would be in my gran and grandparents' house. My, my granda had, they had an organ, a, a Hammond organ in the front porch. Wow. I used to hang on to like the underside of it. And I would pump the pedals, like my whole body weight, just to get the one pedal, like get me air going in it. And then my cousin would be like, here we go. And we would like literally play that. My granddad was the most phenomenal boogie woogie pianist. Wow. Phenomenal. And everybody would sing. My mum had this thing that all musical instruments were only allowed in the house if they looked like furniture. <laughs> it doubled as places to put lace. Yeah, can you, can you put a doily on it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hang on, I just want to get this right, Charlene. She was a window dresser who sang, not a singing window dresser, because I've got this idea that she, I'm going to put oh, this no. show on this mannequin here. <laughs> no. Let me have another. No. Yeah. Now I'm kind of feeling like I'm getting into Hello Dolly or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, feels like all great musicals. But yeah. no, no, she was a window dresser. That sang, yeah, she'd sing a couple of bits up at the Lindella Club and all those old places in Glasgow. Lindella Club is where Lulu came out of. Um, right, and right. Lulu sang at my uncle's wedding. When was that? She was 15, 15, 16 years old when she sang. Before she was Lulu? Yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. She hadn't gone off to London or anything, but she sang. In fact, no, I think she had maybe had shout out and she was, yeah, she was, I'd already established and she came back because she knew my uncle really well and she sang at my uncle's wedding. And it was weird because I remember meeting Lulu for the first time probably about 20 years ago. And I remember saying I was like a bit bashful and, and um, I was like, oh my God, you knew my uncle. And instantly she went, Len Hosey! <laughs> and off she went. Off she went. It was like one of those moments. And because um, I said, Well, you sang at my uncle's wedding. And she went, Len Hosey, you're Len Hosey's bloody niece. And it was one of those. So, yeah. You talked about listening to Spandau and Duran and all that. But I remember there was a club, you're obviously too young for it, but called Maestros. That was. I'm not too young for Maestros, right. Daddy. Off Socky um, Hall Street, up that yeah. terribly steep hill, which was okay when you were going into Maestro's, but was horrible when you were coming out at four yeah. in the morning. <laughs> and that one, see when the winter hit. I mean, do you remember there used to be a metal fence, like an old um, wrought iron fence used to go down it. The amount of people that would be hanging on to that in the winter sometimes because it would ice up really bad. And you would be trying, you'd be up there and you're like, glad rags, you know. Your ballet shoes and your leggings. And... Oh my God, like the fucker boots. <laughs> But I like, put a tucker boots on, like put a baggies on. Just thought we were. The, oh my god! Thought it was bees knees. The thing is, is at that point I would have been about fourteen, fifteen, and I was obviously not supposed to be in maestros. But I was working as a Saturday junior in Irvin Rusk's the hairdressers, and everybody that I hung about with was a good bit older than me. So we on a Saturday night you go done up, and I had the hair, I had interior color, I was like. You know, I remember just having this big, thick jumper. That moment where Haircut 100 were wearing, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, fishermen. Tucked into your trousers. You need to be really thin for that. Tying rags around my ankles, around my boots. (laughs) Literally drove my mother insane. I remember getting my mum to make me 15 petticoats to go under some hop sack that I had that she'd made me a skirt because my mom was a window dresser. She was a great seamstress as well. So I literally drove the woman insane making me clothes. I'd be like, Oh, who's on top of the pops this week? What are they wearing? And what can I rip off? And literally it was everything, you know, going into your granddad's closet and finding big suit jackets and everything and belting them with giant big buckles. And Did you wanted to be a boy. I thought I was Jesse James. You know, I guess it's ironic that I ended up in a band called Texas because my infatuation with cowboys. And literally, you know, when I was really small, people glad to me, oh, you're such a cute little girl. And I'd be like, I'm a boy. Like, shut up, <laughs> you know. And I don't know whether what came first, the fact that I thought, you know, my dad was always bringing me like stuff back from America because my dad worked in America a lot. And I had little chaps and holsters and guns and little waistcoats. And and I swear to God, the sad thing is, is my wardrobe hasn't deferred that much. You know, at the moment I'm wearing, I'll show you, I've got on like a man's chino. Oh, oh lovely. Yeah. Oh, a, a nice, nice loafer there. A Norwegian style loafer. Exactly. As in, 
my Gene Kelly moment because I loved, I've like got on a t-shirt, I've got a white t-shirt with the ribbon. It's all that thing of like film, music, fashion, all of those really merged into each other for me. It's back to being the geek, isn't it? You know. Yeah. And literally not having any pals, so you were stuck in the house watching movies with your gran. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you decide that that's what you were going to do? I didn't decide it was what I was going to do because I kind of thought the musicians were people from London. You well, know? you're absolutely you're absolutely right there. And I'm absolutely right. <laughs> and I'd been accepted to the Glasgow School of Art and I was going to go and study fashion and then... That beautiful Macintosh building. Yeah. The one that burned down. Twice. Twice, yeah. Once. Why would we do it once in Glasgow when we can do it twice? Yeah, you don't, you don't mess about up there, do you? Yeah, I was, I was kind of like a... I was working at the hairdressers and I was DJing because I, I love Northern Soul music. I'm obsessed with Northern Soul. And I was DJing on a Sunday night at Fresh, the club, Big Colin Bar, who everybody in their auntie knows if they've run into Glasgow. Colin did a club night and I would have been, you know, I was like 16 at the time. And... He used to get me on a DJ, and I'd, I'd DJ on a Sunday night, like do a little hour session in order. In theory, Fridays. should you not have been in there DJing at 16? No, I shouldn't have been in there. No. It was Glasgow. It was like, yeah. like, who cared? Yeah. You know, it was like nobody knew. I had really good fake ID. I never even needed fake ID. I just had a big blob <laughs> on me. And uh, <laughs> basically, I was doing that. And then, I, you know, I knew people and somebody through a party in Glasgow, someone had heard me sing at a party or something. And Johnny, who's my songwriting partner and mm-hmm. bass player, and of course, Gary knows Johnny from way back, Altered Images days. And yep. Claire and I have done a duet. Gary, on oh. the album. On oh the album. We've done a duet. Ah, Claire Grogan, fantastic. And Mike Chapman is currently doing a mix on it, like doing some wow mix on it. From Chinny Chap. From Chinny Chap. Yeah, nice, lovely guy. Yeah. Lovely yeah. man, lovely man. Susie Quattro, yeah. of course. Yeah, and he did exactly. Blondie. Blondie stuff and everything, right? Yeah, a new song you've done with Claire. New song, yeah, we wrote a song and we'd, we'd done this thing and we had got Claire to sing with us at the Albert Hall and we played the Albert Hall a couple of years ago and she opened her mouth we did it in Glasgow first. That we did a few nights at Kelvin Grove Park, and she came along to the sound check, and she was unbelievably nervous, and she'd never used in ears. And I was like, Claire, you were doing this like a million yeah. years before me, so shut up. And she suddenly, we were doing a couple of images songs, and then she literally opened her mouth, and every one of us literally went, "Oh my God, it's Claire Grogan!" It's <laughs> that sound is that voice, yeah. It's that voice, mm-hmm. it's the it's so distinctive, it's just get this character to like you yep. know it's her. You yep. instantly know it's her. And you know, that's the thing is I don't know if you guys agree, but for me, I'm like, there's backing singers that are phenomenal. They can sing anything, they can hit any note, they can do anything. But there's so much to be said for, you know, when Bob Dylan sings, you know it's Bob Dylan. It's the same with musicians. There are amazing musicians. It's, thing. it's like you can't teach somebody feel. Yeah. You know, you know, technically you might not be whatever, but you can't teach somebody feel. You either have feel or you don't feel, which I know that Gary's young son, I don't know how old he is now, but I oh, saw yeah, yeah. this boy play when he must have been about four. Yeah, he's 16. And I was literally like... Well, Guy's son is in a band called Outline. And yeah, we've got a lot of musical children. Amazing. Outline, yeah. I but don't... I don't have a musical. In fact, do you know what? I've Look, I've, lucky you. Lucky you. That's the funny thing. Because you don't want your kids to be musicians, do you? You want them to be an editor of The Guardian. Okay. <laughs> Hang on, let's go back because you were DJing in this. I was DJing and then basically someone had spoke to somebody. They all played football together. So Johnny and Jerry played football with two guys that I shared a flat with. But at this point, um, I am just about to turn 18. And I was a fully qualified hairdresser, but I was working a hairdressing salon and I decided to go down that route because they had Catherine Hamnet boiler suits for their uniforms. And I was like, I'm going to go and work there. I was loving it. I was in a, an atmosphere that was really creative. They traveled all over the world from us doing big shows and everything. I was very much part of that. And I was traveling with them and I was the youngest hairdresser that I had ever done that. And we played great music in the salon. We all would make mixtapes up to take in and the weekend would come, big nights out. It was, you know, I was loving it. And then Sparky, 
um, this friend of ours in Glasgow who knew both myself and Johnny and Jerry said, Shar, I know some guys that are putting a band together, come down and sing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought he was talking absolute rubbish. I thought it was like some crappy chat up line. And I was like, I didn't turn up. And it was Tuesday night and I was doing night classes. I got a phone call like, where are you? And I was like, I thought it was bullshit. And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. And I says, okay, I'll, I'll be over in an hour. And I turned up at Sparky's house and he taped me um, singing and I sang, it should have been me. And I sang a culture club song. I think, what did I sing? I was like, give me time to realize. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you really want to hurt me? Do you really want to hurt me? Yes, you really want to hurt me. Was Jerry and, were they playing? Were they the backing band or were you no, just? No, I just, I just sang it Toto a cappella and it was taped and Johnny was on tour with Eurythmics. He was holed up in Amsterdam because Annie Lennox had got sick. Johnny was in Hipsway at this point and all wasn't good there. And Johnny had was wanting to put a band together and he wanted to have a, a female singer. And basically the tape was then given to Johnny and then Johnny came back because then then Annie Lennox they didn't they cancelled a few gigs and Johnny flew back to Glasgow and met me and Sparky says. He's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't even believe it now when I think about it, right? Because I was quite quiet as a kid, believe it or not. But um <laughs> I remember Johnny coming in and, and when I get a bit nervous, I kind of give it a bit, I look, blah, 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 you know? And I remember Johnny coming in and I was like, fucking hell, you're the guy for all the damage in Hipsway. <laughs> and I remember the, the fear and because Gary knows Johnny so well, the fear in Johnny's face, Johnny literally backed off from me like, yeah, whoa, yeah. this is a maniac. And I was a bit younger than Johnny. And then he said to me, he says, do you write? And I went, yeah. And I was just thinking, how fucking hard can it be? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I've read about poetry in my days. And we proceeded to write I Don't Want a Lover that very night. First song we ever wrote together was I Don't Want a Lover. And, and did you play guitar at that point? I played guitar because my dad played guitar and because of the, the musical family thing. But that's the weird thing. Your guitar playing is great. I've seen you play live. I, I wouldn't Full of say, attitude. Yeah, but... It's such an important part of the music and, you know, because I know that you sing and you play. I never understand when someone doesn't do the other part. I don't understand why, you know, to me, if you sing, you don't need to be a musician to your level, right? But, and some people are, but, you know, I can hammer out a tune on piano. I can hammer out a tune on the guitar. I'm good enough to be able to write. And I don't understand a guitarist or a bass player or something that can't sing. I go, what do you mean you can't? What do mm-hmm. you hear? You know, surely, you know, Ali and I have this argument all the time. I'm like, you just played right over me. You know, you know these, you guys know these arguments in bands. And I'm like, <laughs> I go, this is my moment. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Our drummers that do that moment, but just as you, you're like, you, I mean, I am so allergic to drummers. I noticed, but because you that with Texas, I'll say with with the history of the band, it's the one Texas art of drummers. What Roxy Music art of bass players, and, and no know. one has ever seen any of those drummers since, right? Yeah. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, we're looking for a new one at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, any drummers listening? If you fancy a gig for a little bit. Yeah. Well, fancy, fancy a smidgen of Texas for a while. Um, but Charlene, they're singing and singing, and you are yeah. a phenomenal singer. You have character. You have all of that. You know, I can hear elements of what's, you know, all of those things you mentioned earlier that all fed into your voice. Chrissy Hind is obviously there. She must have been a, made a big impact on you. But most of all, I would have thought, because she was a girl with a guitar, up yeah. in front of a load of boys. And she wasn't your typical, you know, she had this black shaggy hair. She wasn't, you know, oh my God, it's Debbie Harry and a beautiful, this blonde glow. And like, you know, it was two very different things. But both bands have been massively influential to me. People like Patty Smith and Chrissy. <laughs> but then again, I've never differentiated, you know, I've never, I've never really split up and went, Oh, yeah, I relate to her because it's a woman. I've never really done that. You know, in my head, I was Joe Strummer. 
you know, I remember the first time I ever saw Joe Strummer play guitar and spit the words out, like, mm-hmm. oh my God, the delivery was like, it was pure passion. I remember his hand, he'd cut his hand on the, the bridge of the, the guitar and literally there was it was bleeding all down it. And I just remember being like, you know, it, it left such an impression on me. And I was like, that's what it is to me. That's what music is to me. It's about being in the song and being in the moment of, I can see the story. I can, it all comes to light for me when I'm performing it and like when, when I'm singing it. And when I am singing and when I am playing, I am actually in my most comfortable place because mm-hmm. I'm not great at explaining sometimes what I'm trying to say. And I never was as a kid, you know, like I remember in a report card early on that now I actually want to go and smack the teacher around the head with. And she said in my report card that I had no understanding of language. And now I want to go, I'm a fucking songwriter. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's like that, that thing. And it's, it was that thing. And, and maybe because there was no rules again to the way that I would use language. And, you know, it's a bit like, Billy Conley tells a story, right? But Billy Conley goes down a road and then he goes, Nick! yeah. But then he eventually comes back to the story. And that is very much how I kind of speak. I will go off in tangents, as you have noticed. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, guys taking notes here. <laughs> well, no, because uh, I, I wrote a song with Joe once for a film. Right. It was never used. And it was that the point about words. Like he came up with this one line, which is the moon look like it's made out of books that nobody can understand. Which when you write it down, it's like, what? But And and he wrote the lyrics down with all this beautiful cartoon stuff around. But he did that thing of, of his going, yeah, okay, um, we're gonna, I've got this line here. And it's just like in your little room at home and then you hit record and he becomes that guy. And he goes from naught to like 200 in a second. And he's just doing that's Joe Strummer thing. Yeah. And it's, Fucking unbelievable. It's one of the most, you know, incredible experiences. I can see the connection now from your story earlier about wearing all those cowboy clothes, getting the cowboy holsters and the gun, to standing on stage wearing a guitar, which is basically a gun, and singing in that fantastic, with an American accent, getting out of your Glaswegian self and everyday life and becoming yeah. this this American star, as it were, which well, we- it's Sam Shepard, isn't it? It's Sam Shepard, which of course- Who's one of my old- Paris, friends. Texas. I mean, literally it's Harry Dean Stanton mm. in that moment where he's standing in the little suit and the hat and he's just gazing out into the that desert blue sky at night when it just goes the deepest, deepest, almost violet. It's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but I know that when I come off stage, sometimes I'll come off stage sometimes and then I go and get changed and I'm literally like covered in bruises and cuts and all sorts because I've been diving around and, you know, it's got a little bit more of a challenge as I've got older. Suddenly I've I've (laughs) jumped off something and then I go, shit, how do I get back up there? I can't get back up there. Do you know what I mean? I've got a bit of that now. Whereas before I would have been like, woohoo! But I love what I do. And I think I love it even more now than I ever did. And I and I loved it from the beginning, but I can almost slow it down now and, and enjoy the moments because I can breathe within it because I'm better at it than I was back then. So that gives me more freedom because as a musician, I'm, I'm always growing. So I'm able to kind of, pull it back and just savour a moment. Yeah. Um, I wonder why, for instance, like when you did your movie songbook, yeah. um, was that you trying to challenge yourself? Yeah, I had the opportunity to do it and I was asked if I would do it and I went, yeah, because I'm never going to make that record for Texas. God bless the child on that is extraordinary. I mean, it's oh, brilliant. So I don't, I don't mean that in the family sense. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it is absolutely oh, brilliant. You know, I'm really lucky that I've got a band that literally go, we, we'll always have Texas. It's like, yeah, we are Texas. It's part of us. It's like what we do. And if I want to go off and do something, nobody kind of goes, oh, shit, she's going to go and become... Because everybody knows Category. I've never wanted to be a solo artist. I've done a solo album and I've done... But the reason that when I made that solo album was mentally... 
I was in a completely different place and I needed to get over what had happened in my personal life. I needed to write those songs and I needed to be not sitting in the studio with Texas and my my guys who are my like they're my brothers and my family going, oh, this is really awkward and Char's not in a good place and oh, we're men and we're not dealing with this properly and I don't know if I should say something. I don't know, you know, it was that. So it was like, I'm going to do this. Then I just went, did it. And then it was like, move on. For me, that it was the first time that I really needed to just get rid of some serious baggage that I had that, that I knew was not baggage, was not going to be Texas baggage. I was in a very quiet, very still place, and that's not Texas. I just needed to make that record. And, th- and that was why I did it. And I did the opportunity to do it. And then on that, that was when they said, do you want to do this film album? And I was like, hell yeah. I really wanted to make that record and, you know, work with all those musicians and have that big band feel to do something because I knew I wasn't going to do it in Texas. I never get into a band to have rules. I get into a band because I didn't want to have any rules. So to me, it's not like staying a lane because if you're a musician, there is no lane to stay and it's like, do you do certain things with this person and then you go off and you do something. But, you know, you guys have played with loads of different people and made different records. It's fun. It's really mm-hmm. good fun working with other people. And, you know, as songwriters and musicians and performers, we're like peacocks. If someone's literally went, duh, 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 we're like, oh, let me show you what I can do. <laughs> and that's what, and that is why we're successful in what we do is because we're not shrinking violets that even though there's elements of shyness to us and sometimes those little geeky musicians kind of creep back in sometimes, there's that thing of it's like fire. It's like someone literally stoking the fire when somebody does something and you, it inspires you to do something else and that's very much what Johnny and my songwriting relationship is, is like, we poke each other. We poke each other. I mean, sometimes it turns into a blazing battle with me going, fuck you, and walking out and doing this thing. <laughs> How do you write a song together? What is the formula for you two? The only formula that I have is that I have to have a new notebook for every album. A red notebook? Um, No, I have, like, where is the... I'm trying to think. Why do you have to have a red notebook, Gary? Because you've got one of your albums. It was an album called Red Book and it was written in a red book. Yeah. So literally there's like, I've got all of them and then I turn it on its side and I write Texas number and whatever. And that is the only format and formula that starts every record. So you might have a guitar part a drum yeah. beat or it something. Can be anything. It can be absolutely anything. It can so it can start anything. with you or it can start with it. You, like, yeah. you it just doesn't have a... matter. Johnny can Johnny be like, what about this? What about that? And then the two of us will come together or I'll say, oh, I've got this. It's like, it's like having one of those big boxes that they used to have on Blue Peter that when they go in it to make stuff and they'd be like, be like the dressing up box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In play school, yeah, that dress up box in play school. But it's like that, but you know, it's like skin in there. It's like, oh, what have I got? What have I got in my bag of tricks? You know, I've always been obsessed with uh, Mary Poppins in that carpet bag. And that play when she pulls a, a lamp out and she goes like this with yeah. it. It was early Amazon, really, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That would be such a good advert for Amazon. It'd be the best. That would be, you should sell that to Amazon, Gary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health, and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. They came into my life. Johnny came into my life with his brother, Jerry. I made friends with them doing the Top of the Pops when Altered Images did Top of the Pops. Probably around the same time we did Chart Number One. Uh, so it would have been about 1982. And I hadn't written the True album yet. And I went up a few times to Glasgow to see them and hang out with Claire and, and Johnny. And, and I'd just written this kind of slightly weird Spandau second album. The music that was constantly being played to me up there by those guys was Marvin Gaye and Al Green. Yeah. And out of those influences of sitting in the car with them, driving around, listening to that music, I actually ended up writing a Blue Eyed Soul album and wrote True. Wow. It's a style of music that's heavily influenced you guys as well. It's a Scottish thing, obviously. Yeah. Soul music, for some reason, is in our DNA. We hang on to it. We soak it up. And it suits us as well. It suits the city. And it suits the escape. Guy and I went to the Motown Museum, didn't we, Guy? And did we did. We're, I we're, went there. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, wow. Lay down on the exact spot where James Jameson had to lie on the floor to play the bass on what's going on because he was too drunk to sit in a chair. <laughs> because Marvin Gaye had been sent out for him because Marvin had written the song at two in the morning and he went, go and get me the band. And the, the Funk the Brothers had a jazz gig and of course they were just finishing up and they're going, quick, get back. Oh, I don't think James is... You, you... <laughs> now, Marvin Gaye, he was a great drummer. And he knew exactly, don't faff over someone's goddamn vocals. It sits in. Are you hearing that, you drummers? Starting to see why you go through so many drummers. Very from the Snowdon Ridges. Phenomenal drummer, because he's a wonderful, wonderful soul singer. Mm. It's like, listen to him play the goddamn drums. He plays it like he's making love to you. Marvin Gaye plays the drums like he's making love to you, you know. He just like hits it hard when he needs to hit it hard and he pulls back when he needs to pull back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't want to make, I do want to make a stupid comparison. I want to compare the sort of feeling of Detroit and that sort of Rust Belt City with Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah. And there is, there is a connection there. I can see that, you know. Yeah, there is that, um, we went to Detroit. We actually wrote a song called Detroit City. That's right, yeah. And when we went to Detroit, there was a mood and a thing about Detroit. And we'd been to Detroit, but we went, when we went out to make the video as well, Detroit has that, there is definitely a similarity amongst them, between them, I should say. And that hard-working motor city. And, you know, Glasgow's an industrial city, but there's also this great musical history and again as well with Glasgow as you know like you have you have like the real working class parts that are deprivation and then you have like wealth yeah yeah it really does have that and there is definitely a real similarity about it well also because we were talking to Alice Cooper about this because you've got Motown Detroit but then this whole other world of hard rock you know complete and and punk and everything (laughs) 
Nazi that's there. kind of what you do, you know, in Texas. It's a real mixture, isn't it, of Al Green yeah. thrash rock. Yeah, it is. It's kind of, it's, you know, it was really funny because I don't know, Gary, if you were there at Carfest a few years ago when Rick Astley was doing it. No. And Rick said to me, literally before he went on, so we had already performed, and I was sitting having a cup of tea backstage, and Rick came running out and said to me, he says, Char, do you know Highway to Hell? And I burst out laughing and I went, <laughs> do I know Highway to Hell? He's like, will you come on and sing? I was like, yeah, whatever. And I came on and Rick was on drums and I sang Highway to Hell. And everybody like, <laughs> what just happened there? And they went, we've never seen that party. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Because... When we first started in Texas, we used to rehearse Highway Hell because Ali is a massive ACDC fan. And I used to like faff about and give it all, sing it. So we wouldn't even flinch between doing an ACDC song, going into Tired of Being Alone, Al Green, and then maybe doing Prince, Raspberry Beret, which we used to rehearse as well. The only thing that I'm not great at, to be really honest with you, which I really am like... Um, useless that a lot of very like if you go to early Bowie with me I struggle I struggle. How, how early okay let's say anything before anything before let's dance or something oh right. okay. the whole wow. Ziggy that, that, that's Bowie yeah. basically <laughs> anything, anything early if you ask me to sing anything I literally turn into Tommy Steele. Yeah, but I bet you'd be uh, do a brilliant Young Americans. Young <laughs> Americans, yeah, I can nail it. You know, I can literally because at that point, so anything that's accented or slightly spoken, I really struggle. I really struggle with. But you just said and Tommy Steele. You'd probably do a great rock with the caveman, actually. <laughs> You know, it's funny, um, you're talking about that eclectic love of music and ability to swing from all of these different bands. And we had Midjur on a couple of weeks ago. He's done the same thing. He's played from everything from Ultravox to Thin Lizzy yeah. to a boy band. And he said, when you grow up in Scotland, you know, the sort of show band thing of, if you're a musician, you play every song in the charts. You yeah. know. I guess having the knowledge is kind of... You have to be able to, someone's playing something and it's like, I, maybe it's, it does go back to that moment of having to go up and do a turn. You better hope that you friggin' know like what is happening and songs from- Including Chirpy Chirpy But, Chirpy. but yeah. you didn't, you didn't do covers oh, bands though, did you? Do you know, I know the song. It's oh. like, it's really, really, but I don't know if you guys have got it, but I know there's definitely a jukebox in my brain. Yeah. And then I'm like, uh -huh, yeah. why don't we do this? Or why don't we do that? Or we could take it down that route or we could go here or we could go there. And it's a really, really important part of being a musician is having a knowledge. But I actually really do love, I love music. I love music. I absolutely love, I love records. I love hearing something on the radio and going, oh, ooh, what's that? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, Charlene, we have to talk about phenomenal success of, of White on Blonde because, yes. you know, because it's it, that was your fourth album. Yeah. You know, how many bands would get that same chance nowadays? Because you had some success on the first record and then it was a bit trickier for you on two records, which I still think are some great music on those. Oh, albums. great. But did, you said you thought Manchester sort of kicked you out the running for a bit. It did. I mean, we couldn't get arrested during that point. I mean, literally, we were like, this shit on somebody's shoe. It was literally like, nope. In the UK, but... I mean, to be brutally honest, the only reason that we got to go to that point, it was because we were so successful in other countries. You know, we were shifting big numbers of records all over the world. France is massive for Texas. Spain, massive for Texas. So we were basically still on album two, three. We were selling a lot of records. So I guess that maybe if our market had only been the UK, we would have probably been up shit creek and we probably would have never, ever got to that point. But luckily enough, we did get to that point. And also the fact that the British record company had no interest in us whatsoever really spurred us on. We were literally like, 
fuck them. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was that kind he of. He sat down and wrote some amazing tunes. That album is yeah. full of hooks, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it was funny. We built a studio in my house in Glasgow and we just went and we just made a record and really inspired by, you know, Johnny was like, let's try and change your your style of singing up a bit. And it was funny because that Charles and Eddie record had just come out and I was singing and Johnny's like, you know, and, and we'd already done a cover version of Tired of Been Alone that had been a hit record for us mm-hmm. before that. And Johnny's like, you should use that. And that was 20 seconds on that. I went into uh. falsetto mode. And it's when I went into falsetto mode that we started within the White on Blood album was such a major turning point for us. And also the fact that, you know, I had really studied Marvin at this point and I had been looking at, like, been watching loads of footage of Marvin in Ostend, you know, he's in the track, he, but he would lie down and do vocals. So he sings on the sofa at one point. Yeah, he's lying mm. on the sofa, literally like that with Mike, just singing in this voice. But the really weird thing is, is when you physically change the position of your body, you sing very different. And for me, changing the position of my body by lying down didn't mean that I was upright and literally go instead of singing from my gut, I was singing more from my chest and it really changed. It changed everything. And and it was a massive learning curve and a massive change in our careers. Plus that took us instantly right down the soul route, which as you've said, is kind of very much part of growing up in Glasgow. So yeah, it was a whole different thing for us. Did you think uh, that you were going to have to sing those songs lying down when you went on tour? <laughs> I have done many a time. <laughs> yeah, I've literally laid down many times on stage and thought, okay, I'm not getting back up today. I'm lying down here. <laughs> Dave Stewart wrote one of the tracks. No, on- Dave worked with us on... Well, we'd done Black Eyed Boy with Dave. We did Black Eyed Boy with Dave, yeah. Why were you bringing people in? What was the what was the reason? Because you brought in Greg Alexander as well, didn't you? At one point, Greg Alexander went on the greatest hits, and yeah, I mean, it's just to kind of to like again going back to the whole tail feather thing, going back to the peacock thing. Sometimes I think the point where we really learned that was we went to America and we were meeting the Hush, and literally we're like, you know, we should put you in with some songwriters because. What's really sad, and it's become such a bog standard line that comes off record companies now, and it breaks my heart because I think of young songwriters and young artists, and I'm like, tell the record company to go and fuck themselves. Before they've even listened to what you do or what someone's done, they're like, yeah, we should get you in with like, some songwriters. And you're about like, yeah. you haven't even listened to what we've done yet. Yeah. And I am I'm a fucking songwriter. songwriter. Yeah. I mean, and I've sold shitloads of records and, you know, but any of the, the people that we've worked with has never been put together by a record company. That's what the really weird thing about it is. We're not adverse to working with people. I worked on a TV series in Glasgow and I was with Bobby Bluebell and he was... Oh, Bobby we wrote. Yeah, Bobby. Yeah, he wrote. Was he writing with you or was he just wrote for yeah, you? Yeah, Bobby Bluebell was the connection to Dave Stewart because we worked on Black right. Eyed Boy together and that's what I was like. My brain's trying to remember all the, the process. So we wrote with Bobby on Black Eyed Boy and yeah. Bobby was really good friends because Bobby best mates with Siobhan from Bananarama. Right. Siobhan was married to Dave. And Bobby wrote with Siobhan back in the day. How is Bobby doing? Oh, he's, he's nuts. He's done some stuff with us on this new album. He's I worked done- with him for weeks and I don't think I ever understood a single word he said. <laughs> Apart from one story he told, which was so funny, we put it in the script of the show. He just bought himself a nice new four by four. He was driving back up to Glasgow. It was a clear moonlit night and he had his foot down and he gets pulled over by the police. <laughs> and this copper goes, right, if you had any idea how fast you were going, Bobby's like, no, I know how fast I was going, but look, see my way, copper, see my way, right? It's a, you know, it's a moonlit night. And the copper goes, yeah, what about Mr. Fogg? And he goes, well, then I put Mr. Foot on Mr. Brake and slow down Mr. Car. <laughs> and the cop goes, Mist or fog. (laughs) 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 Honestly, Bluebell 
See, just having Bluebell in the studio, it causes chaos and <laughs> creativity at the same time because he's nuts. He's got the loudest voice I have, yeah. apart from Tom Jones. Bobby's got the loudest voice I've ever heard. And Bobby Bluebell, if you know, if Bobby Bluebell's ever in the studio with you, he would sell his mother down the Swanee to make sure that he sang ooh on the record so that he can get PRS, which makes me laugh so much. The man can't help himself. He'll be like, I'll do some hand claps. I'll do some stabs. Let me sing. I bet you love him. He's genius. And he comes out of all of that early, uh, what I saw as being the real Scottish scene, which is Postcard, yeah. Orange Juice, yeah. Edwin. And, you know, Edwin's gone on and made records that sound like early he, Pamela as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just look at Girl Like You and you're like, it's funny how we, I don't know exactly how or why it's there, but there is definitely some kind of, I don't know if it's about original Scottish folk music that went to America, that then came back. I don't know what it is, but there's, you know, somebody historically would be able to explain it, but there's definitely, definitely not as so much Edinburgh, but Glasgow is soaked in soul music. How did you get on in the <clears> mid-90s, <throat> you know, there was all the Britpop laddishness and that whole time was all about, you know, viz and lad culture and loaded and how did you feel you know being one of the few women in in that world um it's funny because even though i'm always like you know like as a kid i was always like i want to be a boy i am not laddish in any way which is kind of weird because you know we all know girls that are quite laddish but i am so not laddish I love my girlfriends and... It was quite a sexist time in a way. Yeah. It was yeah, a very sexist time, but everything had been sexist. You know, a lot of people talk now and they go, you know, it's not a sexist now. And I just burst out laughing and I'm like, no, it's better hidden. Right. You know, it's less... Spice weren't helping, were they? And Yeah, and, and that's the thing is that, is that, you know, when people talk about it, it's like, you know, women alone are not going to solve this and we're not going to fix it. We need the good men that are out there that will, will stand up because you see some men and, and things will happen and there's a really laddish situation or a real sexist comment or something. And you're like, well, do you know what? Everybody needs to step up together and kind of go, mm. wind your neck in, shut up, you fool. Or out someone for what they've done. You know, I was really lucky because I've never been, I, I don't know whether... Having the accent, having a Glaswegian accent and having a bit of a potty mouth on you literally puts you in good stead for nobody fucking with you, basically. And if there was a laddie situation sometimes, I'd literally just need to go, like, turn and look. Because I don't know I don't know what they thought I was going to do, but I think they thought, oh, you'd let's just back off of this situation. I think because I've got a gob on me, and I think the only reason that I've got that is because if I see any bullying culture in any way, because I was so badly bullied as a kid that it literally brings such fear and bad memories back to me that I literally, I'm like a rat. I feel like I've been backed into a corner and I've got to get out. I'm like, Ugh. so I use my words to fight it. And, and that's what I do. Charlene, how's Ali now? Because I know, you know, obviously he's Ali good. was really sick he, for a while, wasn't he? He was really bad. I mean, he's like... That was an extraordinary he, escape he had, wasn't oh, it? It is extraordinary. The thing is, it was, what the funny thing about the whole thing is that, you know, I mean, not anymore, but for quite a good few years after his grade five brain aneurysm, you know, they had to like do lots of tests and lots of things because there's certain things that people that have had aneurysms do, like they get very addicted to gambling and the short-term memory and this, loads of things go. But there's also things that they actually do, as I said, like the gambling. And they, wow. they have to do like, they do studies on it all the time. And it's really funny because Ali would get, you know, they would test them, test them, test them. And I remember being one time at something and one of the doctors was talking about they hold up, you know, like cards and what does this look like and what does this look like? Was it? <clears throat> and Ali said something mental, like some bizarre, weird animal of some sort that was like, you know, probably about 10 people in the world knew who it was, what it was. And I remember the, the doctor saying, I mean, you know, he's obviously like his, his short-term memory will never come back. 
And it did come back, but it was what was so funny as I was like, no, Ali would have said that before he had yeah. a grade five brain aneurysm. So, <laughs> you know, what you need to take into consideration, you, you didn't know the person before the grade five brain aneurysm, but the person before was mental as well. So, you know, it was like, you know, Ali's, Ali is the only person I know that, you know, that thing, like when you go into your first big studio or you go into your first, your first time you go to America, whatever, we're all like these pasty little Scots that were literally almost blue. We were that white. <laughs> and literally, I remember the first time we went to make an album in LA when we went to work with Bernard Edwards and Tony Thompson and stuff to make Southside the first time. And there was tennis court in the hotel. And we were all like, let's go and play tennis. I remember we all got really badly sunburned. I remember that really badly. But Ali played um, played tennis, and he's definitely like dyspraxic or something because you can never predict where Ali is going to hit something to or do. There's no sense to anything that, that he does. It makes no sense at all. Can't beat him at any games because he, it's nuts. Is he doing any music with you? He's done bits and pieces. I mean, he's really, he does his stuff with um, Red Sky July with Shelley, his wife, and they've been working on a new record and doing that. But, you know, he comes and does some stuff. He can't do, like, the, the tours that we do are too big. Mm-mm. And physically, it's too much. So, you know, he comes and does bits and pieces. It's funny, you grow into the band that you're you're given in a certain way, certain things happen within the band and the band adapts and changes mm-hmm. to make it easy for everybody. That's just the way we are. We have to talk about your, your new album. Have you finished it? Um, I mean, it's been a great album to make. It's been really weird because the last couple of albums have been really good fun to make because not all albums are good fun to make. You know, some albums are really, mm-hmm. really hard work. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's hard. It's, 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 we all know as songwriters and musicians, there's got to be discipline and there's got to be, right, we've got to make a record and we've got to get in and you've got to work on it and you can't be lazy because we can tell, we all know ourselves when we've done a lazy record and we go, could have done there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, this record was really good fun. What did happen was we'd finished the album before lockdown. You know, for me, as I said, when my mum passing away and stuff like that, I was very much like, I just needed a bit of my own space for a bit just to get my head together because it had just been like bang and it happened very sudden and we told my mum was ill and within five nights my mum wasn't well. Two weeks my mum was dead and it was very, very, it was a really, you know, just trying to come to terms with what happened in my dad, his Parkinson's and dementia, trying to get all that sorted out. So in a way, I was very glad that I just suddenly wasn't going into Texas promo. I was like, right. pull back, get my head together. And then we went back and we thought, right, well, we don't know when the hell we're coming out of this or when the album's going to come out. Because we pulled the album back and we went, let's just, not be a bunch of lazy gets. We'll look at the record and you were doing running or we were starting to do running orders and stuff. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute here, we should do something. So then we did some more writing and we added another three songs to the album that we'd written over lockdown with. I was in Wales, Johnny was in Glasgow, Jack was in LA and Angelica was in Sweden and we wrote via Zoom. That was how we did it. And and it was different. And I wouldn't want to do that all the time to make a record, but it was really interesting and and it was a good thing as well to just be creatively doing something who's angelica yeah angelica bjornson who's written with us on quite a few records she did some stuff on the last Mm. album as well and jack is jack mcelhoon who's johnny's youngest son Ah. a good bit of writing with us give my love to johnny i will tell him for sure oh this has been a real pleasure hasn't it guy yeah it really has thank you so much charlene really really lovely to talk to you pleasure i love speaking with you guys thank you so much for having me Thank you. It's fun. Good luck with the new album. We'll see you when all this is over. Definitely. See you on the other side. Well, that was lovely. Yeah, it was. I love getting the insight to old Glasgow. Gary, I mean, the early 80s, there you are at at the height of your powers. And you're just driving around Glasgow with altered images. I mean, what's going on, mate? (laughs) No, it's amazing what what the heart can lead you to. Indeed. (laughs) It's where you got your seaside arms. Well, it was a pub we went to on the way. (laughs) 
All right, love. I will leave you and uh, I just say thanks to everyone for listening again today. And yeah. we'll be here next week. And keep writing reviews and keep subscribing. Absolutely. And thanks to Ben, our producer. And it's good night from me. And it's good night from all of us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>